after the first cell was formed, we don't know, and roughly between 3.5 and 4 billion years ago, that the transition from the chemical world chemical to, state the, uh, to, to the biological yes. state took place. Yeah. The cell obviously is a mixture of a large number of constituents, and uh, built in that system is the ability to undergo a change. Mm-hmm. The genetic material, whether it was RNA to begin with or DNA, uh, there's a mutation that can take place, a random change. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a fundamental property of any living system, any complex system, that something can go wrong at some time. When you say random change, it truly means random change. It, it means, just a pure it means accident. random change. Yes. It's just like a machine. Yeah. <laughs> that you can have the best of machines, but someday something will go wrong and you cannot predict it. Yes. <laughs> and you have, of course, repair mechanisms. Errors, not cell. mistakes. Yeah. Uh, hmm. uh, there are errors. Yes. Yeah. So, so repair is a very key word. And it is these unintended errors that lead to a change. Yeah. Now, if the change organism is more suited for the environment in which it is surviving, then uh, it would have an advantage over the parent organism. And therefore, the change organism will slowly replace the parent organism. Yeah. Or both of them will continue to live together. That's very interesting. And now the change organism can again change. Yes. So, one of the characteristics of living systems is the ability to change through a yeah. mutation. So, in fact, when um, my two good friends, Francis Crick and Jim Watson, were working on the structure of DNA, yeah. <laughs> they said that uh, the structure of DNA should be such that it should allow synthesis of proteins, mm-hmm. it should have information for synthesis of proteins, mm-hmm. and it must have the capability to change. Because the capability to change? To change, yes. yes. To undergo mutation. <laughs> because if it doesn't, then no, no evolution can take place. So all the variety of life forms that we see around us, at some place far back in time, there's a certain mutation that has led to that's, life forms branching out. That's, that's absolutely right. If you have a scale, and a very ordinary scale, whose least count is 0.1 millimeter, then the random errors would be around this magnitude because the marking on your scale itself is probably 0.1 millimeter. That's the thick. smallest yeah. unit of it's measurement. The smallest, so, and you could go wrong either way. You could over right. overestimate it or underestimate it. But you could have a more sophisticated instrument whose resolution is much better than 0.1. But still, there will be an error, mm-hmm. again, of the random kind. But its mm-hmm. magnitude will be small. Mm-hmm. So that's the way it is. But so in quantitative experimental science, there are inevitable measurement errors and mostly of the random errors kind. And there is a full-fledged mathematical theory of random errors, basically probability theory. Statistical And, and the mm. subject of mathematical statistics, which is founded on probability theory, deals with how to estimate these random errors. For example, when an experimentalist quotes a certain value for measured You do that with a confidence interval. It's always done with an error bar. And I would also like to say that it's not only in quantitative sciences like physics, but even in behavioral sciences, mm-hmm. you do talk of errors. And it's done there in a slightly different way. But nonetheless, they also make use of probability theory to estimate possible errors in their hypothesis. So, in Bell's proof, if one rejects contextuality, the idea that your measurements don't depend on what other measurements you've performed, either spatially or temporally distant measurements you've performed, if one rejects that, 
then can't one maintain some counterfactual definiteness in a certain sense like no i think you, if you don't assume that counterfactual definiteness is true you cannot make bell's argument at all uh-huh. so to derive bell's inequality you need that that is a key ingredient of that inequality so in, in a sense you know that alternative world view that bell is beginning with in order to derive his inequality has that as an essential so my the kind of test case i always think about for these kinds of thing is is bohm's understanding of quantum mechanics which was a non local hidden variable theory but you had not just the wave function but you had particles with particular properties both before and after the experiment but it's also true that in his theory what you measure depends on the other measurements you've conducted uh, your measurements are not independent of each other so you have this element of contextuality so that theory at least a hidden variable theory of that kind does seem to have this idea of what bell would call beables but the beables are not local in the way bell would have thought about them right Yes, no, this is absolutely right. And again, counterfactuals have had their history. I mean, Russell and a lot of logical positivists following Russell in the 1930s and 40s just banned them from science altogether. They thought counterfactuals, you know, um, if, mean, Hitler, if Hitler had invaded England in 1940, he would have X. Well, who can tell? Who knows what would have happened? You know, they're, they're sort of unmanageable. But then they came back in. People said, well, look, we can't. I mean, Russell thought we could do without causation altogether, that all science should just be, you know, changes in state. I mean, just the dynamic of the equations governing changes of state of the systems, but no causal story. But causation had a habit of coming back. and with it came back counterfactuals and so now as Ross was saying this is the sort of judea pole and um very anxious to get a decent logic of counterfactuals going is the werewolf the person expelled from the community for their crimes typically murder they can be murdered but not sacrificed uh, they can, can be, be killed. Mur- he can be killed by anyone but he cannot be sacrificed because they because lack he's a certain kind of purity and clean and he's already with the gods so the wolf part of that is the unclean part and this is where your toxic animal comes in yeah the parasite the wolf is a very ambiguous metaphor is considered to be a parasite a vermin in Wyoming they call the wolf varmint yeah um <laughs> right but uh, at the same time the wolf is also in many cultures uh, revered thinking of Mongolian culture for example or of tribal cultures in North America or thinking of the national socialists you know to whom the wolves were stalwart and strong and they were revered Adolf Hitler saw himself as a wolf not least because of his first name Adolfer Athelulfer <laughs> which means the noble wolf so there was a whole lot of sort of wolf worship going on in national socialism but the vermin side of the wolf is interesting in terms of this this monstrosity that comes about here yeah the wolf man you know as a monster apart from what is there in the dreams there's also the spectral dimension you know people see ghosts and that's something which appears as a spectral experience it is a true visual experience oh yeah yeah it is people see ghosts you know and so there's <laughs> continuous movement in time historical movement and so on and if people were seeing ghosts in more and more in traditional times even in my childhood people used to see ghosts around our house and so on various kinds of <laughs> variety of ghosts all over the world you know all over india and so on and now you see ghosts in television or in cinema you know do you mean that in a metaphorical way clearly you mean it no everything is metaphorical to some extent <laughs> you cannot get out of these metaphors right. you know and there's certainly right. great amount of metaphor involved in this yeah and so these are uh, ghosts which are beneficial ghosts or harmful ghosts and ghosts were either beneficial or harmful 
uh, all the time, you know, spectral oh. phenomena. And since they are all around, they're all pervasive, these, we try to locate ourselves spectatorially in relation to these images. And we need to experience them as one way or the other spectres, all right, not just images. So you have the dreams, spectres, and pictures and images as such, you know, you, one has to take into account all these. Well, ghosts have been there in classical literature. You know, Seneca has a lot of ghosts. Plutarch in his lives of the Greeks and Romans has ghosts visiting Brutus, which Shakespeare adopts in his play, mm. Julius Caesar. But the change that Shakespeare is bringing about is that he adds a sense of wonder to the ghost. You know, what was happening in kids' Spanish tragedy or in Seneca was that the ghost would come on, would be, you know, a bloody figure, would make pronouncements, would ask the characters to do something and disappear and maybe come back at the end. Now, what Shakespeare does in Hamlet is that all of Act 1, the other characters are wondering what this creature is. So that that sense, sense of mystery. Yeah, that sense of mystery, that sense of wonder is what Shakespeare is doing. And mm -hmm. he is doing this as a result of connecting with the native English tradition. Okay. He's not just borrowing the classical idea of the ghost. He is talking in terms of the native English tradition, not just of elves and goblins and spirits. In fact, Hamlet, when he first sees his father's ghost, says, are you a goblin? Oh. You know, are you a goblin or are you a, a, an angel or a healthy spirit? Just when you talk of influence, we're talking of Pajif, all these things that... Uh, in, in separate rooms, in it's not like that, of rooms. course. Right. So one influences the other. So right. until the 17th century, there was no such thing. The influence things comes only when the split has taken place. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a vice versa. Copernicus certainly was a great influence on poetry. In lots of 17th century poetry in England was influenced by the heliocentric system of Copernicus. John Donne, for example, William Shakespeare, they were all influenced by when Copernicus says it's the sun is the center, not the earth. Right. When the earth is replaced and sun, right. the heliocentric system. Right. That brought lots of interesting ideas into poetry. But, you know, I do want to go back to the sun and earth because it reminds me of this funny anecdote in, in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories where, you know, Watson is shocked to hear that Sherlock Holmes doesn't know that the earth moves around the sun. And <laughs> he can't get over it. He's like, what does that mean? You are this, you know, this smart guy and now you're telling me you don't know this? And, and, and he said, but why should I need to know it? I mean, what about me changes or my life changes by me knowing? So I don't know why Conan Doyle put this in, but to right. me it sort of suggests what do we need to know and why do we make certain things the meter of being what knowledgeable. What is worth knowing? What is worth knowing? What is worth and why knowing? does it have to be the same for everybody? The same thing could be true of people like Yeats, who was a theosophist and then he was a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn. He was very into tarot cards and <laughs> communicating with the dead, automatic writing. So where's the place of rationalism Actually, if I may in just, the West? Yeah. If I may just historically layer that, this is very interesting what happens in Europe more generally after the First World War as well. Because the scale of death, the fact that what they call the flower of English youth mm -hmm. dies in the trenches... Mm -hmm. And Paul Fussell, the great literary historian, has called this the birth of irony as, you know, yeah. the uh, unable to deal with the horrors that people have to develop a register of language that allows distance. So you find Arthur Conan Doyle, what greater example of... I was of just going to mention him, yeah. you know, because he was 
the, the person who created the ultimate rational detective yes, and, and was also Holmes. the president of the Society for of Spiritualism. Absolutely, and he was photographing fairies in his garden. And ghosts. Right? And ghosts, and, and ghosts. so on. So I think these are also conjunctural things. But I think with regard to the Shakta and the Shakti, you know, and, and Chris Bailey is certainly no authority on uh, Indian culture because he didn't know any Indian languages. So a lot of mistranslations, misunderstandings and so on. But that's, again, another field. But I think the interesting thing that India and England share in common is a strong belief in agrarian hierarchy. Overall, death rates are enormously progressive, but you know when you want to solve problems, you look at specific things. So huge progress in child deaths coming down. Almost everything is coming down. But when you see things like suicide death rates going up, you should say, what's going on? We have a, have a societal debate on what's going on. And how different is it in different parts of the world? And are we in, dying in, differently today from 200 yeah. years ago? Well, just take the suicide statistics in the mm -hmm. West. The mm -hmm. age patterns is that most suicides occur at the end of life. And people who have chronically depressed, right. and they tend to uh, do themselves in. Mm -hmm. But in India, the pattern that's been, and in China, particularly in the southern so parts. So these are not necessarily psychiatric conditions? No. What If there's been some studies that find among suicide attempts that survive, the next day they were fine. They really were acting out in a social situation, which we don't understand. We can guess it involves marriage or work, and their rational way in their mind was the best thing out for me in this situation is to kill myself. Yeah. But if they didn't... When you're better off dead than alive. Yeah. And that's the next day, however, there was no issues. It's not like they needed chronic antidepressants or other things. Oh, they, that's they were very fine. interesting. And in, in those same areas, do you see cases of stress-induced diseases or whatever. Well, stress higher. doesn't actually cause a lot of diseases. There's That's a bit true. of a myth that stressed mm. people get heart disease. No, actually, that obese people who smoke and have diabetes get heart disease. <laughs> stress or not. So, right, yeah. right. What's your formula, Mohan, for a disease-free world? What are the must-haves? I think one very important determinant uh, of health, which we have not spoken about, is inequality. Social and economic inequality leads to a lot of diseases and societies. By which you mean this lower wage, right? No, no, inequality. That some but people are rich and others are poor. I think this leads to a lot of uh, diseases and not just psychological diseases. It lies at the root of exposure to communicable and non-communicable diseases. It determines whether or not you have access to treatment. I think if we did something about inequalities in our society, we would be dealing very effectively with a large number of diseases that you have. Right. <laughs> I think hypertension, for instance, mm. and stress related to inequalities is mm. one very important determinant of diseases. Why don't we you change? See, you yeah. see, there is yeah. this very interesting study among civil servants in England. Mm -hmm. And these are not populations which are exposed to either hunger or poverty. And yet you find a very, very marked gradient between your level as a civil servant and your likelihood of catching diseases and dying. Is that so? Yes. <laughs> and the fact of the matter in this study... Yeah, I hope it's a valid study. It's a valid ongoing study. And what it shows you is that these uh, sort of determinants of disease, that is drinking, smoking, exercise, fibrinogen level, all of which are being taken every six months from this group of civil servants. It's called the Whitehall study. Level three is going to come down. Now, all these could explain only 33% of the differences in death rates in these populations, 66% remains unexplained. So the hypothesis is 
inequality the reason, the fact that some people are able to make decisions about others' lives. It's so an interesting who, who has more stress, the one who's at making the, bottom, the decision? At the, or? at the bottom, the people huh? who, for whom <laughs> others, people lacking agency. It's important, I mean, Bergson, again, is the founding thinker in a way of that of Elan Vital, but there's a whole tradition of philosophers who've tried to think about concepts of life force. And it's become, from a number of different directions, interesting to people today because it helps you think about, for example, the human in a wider frame of reference, that how do we think about the non-human and the human as not necessarily as mutually implicated. And so it helps one think beyond a lot of dichotomies of nature, culture, or artificial and real I mean, I myself came to it in my own work in order to think about quality of life right. and how one thinks about uh, the quality of life, not just um, or very basic concepts even in social theory like human agency. So the idea that I found most appealing was waxing and waning life, which you mentioned in the introduction, where it isn't that human potentiality or agency is simply empowerment. Right. Our life force in a way waxes and wanes. And that's, for me, been a useful way to understand it's also a useful way to engage a lot of other non-Western epistemologies or, or ontologies in which are energy-based or thinking about the body as a site of movement of different forces. So life force is a very fertile concept because it's in a way overlaps with a lot of uh, the idea of chi in Chinese thought, prana uh, and in yeah. Indian philosophy. So it provides a very fertile way in psychiatry. Sometimes people express certain disorders in an idiom, like the heart is a famous, is a yeah. culture-bound syndrome in which people are complaining of a loss of vitality, yeah. which in psychiatric terms is understood as a culture-bound syndrome. Yeah. But if one understands it as a concept which one can use to think about a number of different disorders or forms of decay, which are basically here, the concept of decay would be something like forms of dying prior to death, which would be a slow ebbing of life force. So biological structure emerges in the face of these fluctuations. And if you look at any biological form, it's always fluctuating in this sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's not static like a crystal. So are there stable biological forms? Are there the so equivalents of quartz in your world? Which One might think of our form as being stable in some sense, right? because <laughs> yeah. you're probably melting away on some time scale, but not at the time scale that we are alive, right? right. Um, right. So it's stable, but it's still sort of fluid enough for you to be able to make movements, for you to be able to sense things, actuate things, and so on and so forth. Right. And so there's this delicate balance somehow between maintaining structure which is achieved by these interaction energies, and still be able to use the energy that you consume with the food you eat and the, you know, the ATP and so on to be able to achieve these tasks. Is there a way of generalizing that to say that any system which is interacting more with the environment would essentially be non-stable morphologically? Right. So as long as the interaction energies which are maintaining the structure are comparable to energies which are acting on the system, Fair. they can be non-equilibrium in terms of, you know, you're actively pumping the system with energy. So if these scales are comparable, then you start to get all these fluctuations and flows and interesting things, right? right. Uh, so that's the scenario in which biological structure or shapes are placed. Mm. And then you think of various other things when you think of biology. I mean, the way I like to think about biology in some sense is going back to the Aristotelian view of form and shape. So where he calls matter as potentiality mm -hmm. and form as actuality. So as I was saying, at the very low level, there's 
quite a lot understood and characterized about memory. So we know how very, very brief signals of rapid neural activity, for example, coming from some experience, can lead to long-lasting changes in how cells communicate with each other. And this is called synaptic plasticity. Sure. Various terms are given long-term potentiation and depression and so on. And these are readily characterized and a lot of mechanistic details have been worked out about molecules and electrical and so on. Is there a role played by recurrence? Can a single event have a very, very long-lasting memory or it necessarily needs to be something that's repeated, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And actually, what anyone would treat as the intuitive and obvious answer is the correct answer, which is that very strong and salient events can be remembered once off. But for learning things which are not accompanied by a strong emotional significance, you typically need to repeat and work at it to remember. Mm. And this is not news to any uh, school child. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody who's ever taken an exam. Anybody who's ever taken an exam knows that this is the case. Genetic markers, I would say it's just a very narrow focus. It doesn't really lend us because you have a lot of plasticity in many of the species. And this plasticity is governed by the environment in which you put the plant into. So finally, adaptive success of a plant is not just the genetic, but is the interaction of the genes and the environment that you put into. So unless that is done empirically, you will never know whether the species is going to be adaptable to a given area or not. Let me give a very quick example. The British brought in rubber from Brazil and planted it all over the country. Right. But finally, it was successful only in two or three parts of this. Kerala and a few other places. Mm. And these are the places that really mirrored the rainforest sort of climatic variables that the Brazilian climate had. So it clearly can't survive in a Deccan plateau, which is unlike what it was in Brazil. Right. So you have a sort of match made between the niche that was available for Brazilian rubber there and what was available in the country. Somewhat formally, uh, from a philosophical lens, uh, is an amateur team very different from a professional team? I think so. First, the institutionalization is important, so institutions are more complex. There are more perspectives, more interests to coordinate. As professional institutions with fans, fans' expectations matter a lot. One example to make it very concrete has been, for example, in Brazilian soccer, there's always been this debate about whether it's enough to win or you have to win with beauty and grace and joyful sort of forward attacking. There's a qualitative Uh, side to it. So the quality of how you win matters. And there are even some uh, views that are sometimes labeled romantic, if that's the case, I'm a romantic, (laughs) that it's better to lose playing beautifully than to win an ugly game. Right. And so there, the fans and the tradition of the institution or the tradition of the practice matters. It becomes part of what it means to practice well, in this case, the sport. To me, a deeper question is, uh-huh. in the notion of a state, is need for legitimacy critical? So the need for legitimacy comes because if you think that states compete, And there is rivalry between the DNA of many adjoining states. So then you go back to something like what you saw in Europe over the last thousand years, which is that the liberal democracies had greater legitimacy. They were able to enforce taxation and therefore they survived. So you got a bigger GDP, you got a bigger tax GDP ratio and that's what won. That's the UK. But that's making a different claim. That's proving it with evidence that states with legitimacy will survive. But then it does not tell you that an institution without legitimacy cannot be a state. 
taking your point of authoritarian regimes or even things like ISIS i mean there's no basis to say that they're legitimate but they survive and survive for a while so yeah. the question is how critical it is to have if again i take forward my notion of an institution that has comparative advantage in violence mm-hmm. is it legitimate because it could come about completely illegitimately how arbitrary is it you think a statehood can be completely arbitrary just uh... i think all states are i mean uh, no matter how so called democratic it is every state is definitely a structure of violence right and uh, no matter what how much it mean, means, it means that at some point if you have a society where surplus is controlled by a tiny minority at the end of the day then one way or the other finally politically that has to manifest the fact that these are the people who control things uh-huh. and through different elisons through different mediations ultimately the state belongs to them let's say to put it roughly See, one of the things that you were uh, basically saying is that at the end of the day we are talking about legitimacy yeah Mm. it is only when the legitimacy of one side is established over the other mm. that you really have the impetus for a resolution of a problem mm. now if the state is as bad as the rebel or the terrorist even if the state prevails then that that's a vicious circle it's a vicious circle yeah. and it will not be you, you see there is an ends means continuum yes a state that establishes its dominance through the use of indiscriminate violence is a state that will never have that kind of legitimacy we come to the old classical doctrine of democracy that force as coercive force and yeah. authority as consensual yeah. or charismatic yeah, force positive freedom and negative freedom exactly of that sort. so yeah. the state's legitimacy arises mm. out of its consensual use of authority mm. its use of authority in manners or ways that are acceptable and accepted by people the degree to which consensual authority is diluted is the degree to which the state starts using coercive force and if consensual authority is completely withdrawn from the state the state tends to start becoming more and more indiscriminate why do dominant systems emerge when do they emerge are there initial conditions that lead to it is there a way of theorizing about it in a manner without necessarily getting into this question of nature culture you see the one thing that immediately comes to my mind is that the type of what you are calling as dominant system emerging is a manifestation of one kind of an equilibrium of a game and that dominant system sustaining is the case of equilibrium selection so what's happening here is that i'll can explain this better with an example so you sure. consider the example of a game in which players play sequentially this game is called kurno oligopoly okay the so game so you're distinguishing it from a simultaneous game i'm separating it from a simultaneous game in a simultaneous game players would have to make moves simultaneously as if they are you know held up in solitary confinement and now they have to just decide what to do whereas in a sequential game one of the players plays first the second player observes what has been played by the first player and then has to respond to that, that and what is be, the competition for here for prize for quantity uh, the, for yeah so in in the case of kurno oligopoly what they are trying to decide is the quantity of production of some homogeneous good sure. say like electricity or wheat or something that is indistinguishable across the two producers so the player one decides his quantity level the pro- objective of each player is to make as much profit as possible the second player now decides his quantity level they are coupled because the price that they would see in the market that the quantity would sell for will depend on the net quantity Overall produced quantity. by both now here two questions that i see the second player has seen what the first player has produced it seems that what he would do is look at what the first player has done and then do what is his best response to that quantity level so this leads to one kind of an equilibrium then in that equilibrium what happens is that the first player decides a quantity 
taking into account what the best response of the second player is going to be right. to his quantity right. this leads to one equilibrium in this case you may say that the first player is in some sense dominating the second player because he is able to impose on him a decision that the second player has to then follow so is this a regression of result and there yes. is some kind of a first mover advantage uh, yes there is there is in fact you can show this that if the second player has a unique response there is in fact a first mover advantage advantage right. to the uh, to the person who's moving first relative to both moving simultaneously this can be shown but i was also thinking of taking a lot on the game the opposite of this where here nothing seems nothing that's directly staked yeah. on the game yep. the opposite would be what jeremy bentham called deep play where so much is staked on the game and that is gambling as game playing you can bet you, the real world bet, on the game yes, you can mm. bet your entire fortune your inheritance yudhishthir in the mahabharata game of dice betting his brothers his wife his kingdom his fortune on the game so there are real world consequences to what you are doing you are so deep in play that you lose sight of what the consequence is for you these are asymmetric in, payoffs no there's only so much you can gain but you can lose everything yes, you can lose everything and this sort of deep play is also a way in which literature has tried to represent the world for example you know, if you take uh, satyajit ray's film or premchand's right. short story shatranj ke khilari you find these two engrossed in mm. their play meanwhile vajid ali shah is losing the kingdom of avad you know? i'm sure there are people of that sort dhruv knows <laughs> <laughs> in the real world today yes. or you know in kavabata's <laughs> the master of go where kavabata actually does use the game to write a kind of tragic account of the death of older japanese culture right. you know a culture of honor a culture of pride and while the description is that of a game being played what is involved in it what is staked on it seems to be something far more 